0: Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros, and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
1: Now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line, as you all know, is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and over on Twitter at Peter Kessler. Over the last couple of weeks, he's been putting out snippets of the great interviews he's done with former U.S. Open champions. So there's so many of them. They're all fantastic. Sort of a run-up to the U.S. Open. Go on his Twitter page and check those out. And just like everything Peter does, those interviews are very insightful and really take you into the mindset that those players had. And you get stories you didn't hear anywhere else than on Peter's Golf Talk Live show back when he was on the Golf Channel. And that show by far is the best golf program ever. Also be sure to check out Peter's website, peterkessler.com and book him for an event. Listen to some of his archive episodes of his podcast, which was called Reading the Break, which was also fantastic. We've got some links back to that over on our site, nextonthete.net. And like I always say, no one knows the history of the game of golf better than Peter does. And it's always an honor and a privilege to have him as part of the show. And I'm very excited he's back with me tonight here on Next on the Tea. Good evening, Peter. How are you, my friend?
0: I'm not fooled by any of this. I know exactly what's going on here. So you get four stud muffins to be on the show. So you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Guess who's the lead horse? Guess who gets to go first? (laughs) Guess who has to carry the load? I heard you go through all the subjects you're going to cover with the other three guys. I crossed off nine of the ten on my list. You left basically nothing. So I'm going, sure, he's going to just put me on the spot and make me come up with something, you know, completely off the list, off the charts that he didn't think of, and I've already got one, which is setup. And I want to talk to you about setup because my philosophy has actually come full circle on this, you know, When I was growing up, you know, when I was, say, in my 20s, you know, and they had the Wingfoot Massacre in 1974 where seven over by Hale Irwin won and the year before, Johnny Miller had torched Oakmont in the final round with nine birdies and an eight under par final round to win the championship. So they made it a little harder, obviously, in 74. But the way they did that was they just made – Really long rough, and they made the greens hard, and they made the greens fast, and the weather cooperated, and you just had to put the ball in play, whatever that took. You know, Jack Nicklaus and Ben Hogan always said the most important thing is to be in position off the tee, and it doesn't matter what club you hit. You know, just because you're on a tee 14 times that isn't a par three doesn't mean it's a driver. And in a lot of U.S. Opens and major championships, Nicholas three-wooded his way around all of those places because he could hit it almost as far as his driver. He can certainly hit it straighter, and he could position it in sections of the fairway. So that was really the test, you know, right through 2004 at Shinnecock when they lost the golf course so then they had a shift in management and then unfortunately they made a shift by people who didn't have enough knowledge to do so in the philosophy of how a U.S. Open golf course should be set up so it started in 2005 at Pinehurst wasn't a lot a little bit and we got into graduated rough so that if you were just off the fairway, not too bad. A little further, it was worse. A little farther, it was for horrid. That didn't seem to work. Conceptually, it didn't seem like a bad idea. And so what happened is they had this series of experiments where we've gone to an An eclectic group of golf courses, including Erin Hills and Chambers Bay and places that hadn't held the U.S. Opens before Chambers Bay was granted the U.S. Open before it was even a golf course. So that was that was pretty stunning. So you've had an unusual group of places that you've gone and then an untraditional series of setups. Think back to Martin Keimer winning at Pinehurst after Coor and Crenshaw came in and redid the golf course. So there was no rough off of the fairways. It was just, you know, scrubland, but totally playable, be playable by a 15 handicapper. And unfortunately for the audience, he won by a zillion shots and the whole thing was extremely boring and nobody was required to hit a pitching club around the greens. Martin Keimer had the chipping ifs at that time in his career. People don't know that but he never had to loft a shot around the greens. He putted everything. You go back and look, he putted everything. So what, what I thought was, okay, what should we do now, okay? Now that we're here, what needs to happen now? And I finally realized that what needs to happen now is you need to go back to traditional U.S. open setups. The master's is unique for a number of reasons one it's played on the same golf course every year two everybody who watches it knows is it knows it as well as they know their home golf course three you know we expect stuff on the back nine on Sundays and they've been good about that the last few years letting the fireworks occur letting guys make birdie on 13 and 15 and 16 like tiger did in the final round when he won so it's always had a unique identity. And if you look at the open championship, you know, generally that's dictated by the weather. Basically, you know, if you and I play there on Sunday, on on Sunday, you know, Monday, the guys come in, they don't really do anything different. They play the tees a little bit further back, but they can't speed up the greens because if the wind comes up, the ball's going to roll. The greens are three and four times larger than the ones at Pebble Beach this week. So the green speeds are such that you have to Push the ball to the hole. You can't roll and let the ball die to the hole at the old course. So weather dictates the Open Championship. PGA has had a more PGA Tour-like identity. Let the guys score, try to pick a good golf course. Now we're picking some U.S. Open courses. But I think their identity is a little bit muddy still at this point. But the U.S. Open had a clear-cut identity. It was ribbon fairways. It was long rough. fast, hard greens, no chipping areas, and figure out a way to put the ball in play. And so I'm hoping that's what we have this week because given that the golf course is short enough that a Francesco Molinari could win where he couldn't have won at Bethpage or couldn't have won at Shinnecock for a variety of reasons, including unregulated equipment and a golf course that was so long that only a couple of guys could play it both last year and this, the same two guys finished first and second in the U.S. Open last year as they did this year because they were the two longest hitters, Brooks and D.J., and they could hit the ball 30 yards by everybody else and hit shorter, higher irons, in. and, of course, they're going to finish one, too. So I would like to see Pebble go back to that setup now. In June, in Pebble Beach, you really can't count on that. kind. You don't know what you're going to get. I mean, weather's is always the biggest factor in any golf tournament, you know, because it's the one thing you can't control, and it's the one thing you need to be prepared for in the best way that you possibly can for everything that can happen from wind to rain to whatever. So because Pebble's short, because the longest hitters are going to just nudge stuff into play where where it's appropriate and prudent to do so, anybody can win. So it ought to be a put-the-ball-and-play course this week. Long rep would be appropriate. The greens are not going to be hard. I, I, you, any, you know, I, I have watched the weather. I haven't looked at anything on TV about the golf course. But, you know, I, I, I lived there for a couple of years when I was much younger, and I know what the June weather is like. And I'm guessing the greens could be softish. and the the element that needs to occur is a little bit of wind. Now, the wind will make the greens play half their size, and they're already the smallest set of greens really anywhere. They're 3,500 square feet on average. The tour average is 7,500 square feet. Of course, St. Andrews is 10,000-plus square feet because most of the holes are are double green. So I think a really good test would be A traditional U.S. Open setup, you let the super, who has for the last 3,650 days, maintain that golf course every day since the last time the USGA was there. You let him make the decisions. I believe they have made an agreement to let the super dictate what's going on this week. I don't think they're going to have corporate guys from the USGA make decisions about a golf course that they haven't been to in 10 years, and this guy lives there and the guys in the USG aren't trained in this kind of work. They're just corporate guys that show up in blazers. You know, they don't you know, show up in blazers to work in the dirt. So I'm hoping for a traditional setup when I come back round two. That's what the Open needs to be again. Put the damn thing in play. Figure out a way to put it on the green, chew putt, get out of town. If the, If the course yields to brilliance because the weather cooperates, then so be it. Two under a day is a fine score to have. if Because if the weather's perfect and they can't shoot under par, one or two under the winner each day on average for the week, four under, six under, eight under, then the golf course is tricked up. But if they, if the if the course will yield to the brilliance of the best player for the week, then a one or two under a day is a reasonable score to have this week at the U.S. Open.
1: So, Peter, to take that to the next step, right, one of the things that you talked about and is spot on, of course, is Brooks and DJ finishing one two the last couple of years. And you talked to uh, Jack Nicholas once upon a time about Pebble Beach. And one of the things that he talked about is, look, if the weather is benign and the forecast for this week is partly cloudy, high 65, winds about 10 to 12 miles an hour, not terrible. So the course can be gettable. 65 or 66, I think he said to you, you know, is a is an easy, quote unquote, score when Pebble is playing, you know, in benign conditions. So if that's the case and if they grow the rough up, which is what we've heard is the rough is going to be high. How many guys does that bring back into the tournament? It doesn't seem like at 7000, just under 7100 yards. And, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, not that far to what we've seen. Augusta National grow the, uh, grow the length of the course too. Certainly not what we saw at Beth Page Black. So I think that brings more players into the game. Do you think this is going to be, if the weather conditions are benign, a course that is gettable and that is going to bring a lot more players back into the tournament?
0: I would say Jack's memory on that is not accurate because, you know, you go back to 72. I think he was a couple over for the week and. His final round, 74, was the best round of the day in 72. When Watson won in 82, I think he was five or six under and Jack was two back. So that's not six under a day. There are certain times when it is gettable. Remember that Tiger was the only guy under par in 2000 for a whole host of reasons, one of which is he's one of the most magical players that ever lived. But he was the only guy under par, you know, and it was a traditional U.S. Open setup. So, Jack is right in that you can get a 66, but you can't get a whole bunch of them. And because the greens play small, 10 to 12 miles an hour in the wind is a one-club wind. It's just enough to cut the effective size of the greens down by 1,000 square feet. So now you're 25, 2,700 square feet. Those are small hitting surfaces. And so you're going to be tempted to put the ball a little closer to the green off the tee so you have less in because the surfaces are playing smaller. But you can't really do that because you can't forget that the only thing that's really important to stand on the D- tee is being in position to have the next easiest shot that you can possibly have. And that means not swinging as hard as you can with the driver. They're not going to need – even 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 the, the medium hitters aren't going to need driver a lot. So it's the first time in a while – that I can think of a long time that a Corey Pavin type player almost could win, who won at Shinnecock 95 and Greg Norman was second. And, you know, that was a really tough golf course. I was there all week. Bill Nicholson had a chance. He doubled 16 the last day. I think he doubled it once before as well. And, And so, you know, Corey Pavin now hit driver five iron, a five wood into 18. I was standing right there and watched the shot, actually missed the four or five footer. People forget that, but he didn't actually need it. You know, and Greg had nothing in. He could have thrown the ball underhanded onto the green. So, you know, that was a keep it and play thing. But Corey Pavin was so good with his longer clubs that he was able to be more than competitive because he ended up being the winner. Now, I'm not so sure that's true now because of the way the equipment has affected the game because... You know, from 1995 till today, the ball goes 45 or 47 yards longer off of the tee for the average player, for the average player. Think of this. Phil Mickelson at almost 50 is almost 50 yards longer than he was at almost 30. Now, this is not the week to do bombs and all that crazy fill top you got to remember, Phil won there this year, but it's a different golf course early in the year than it is in June. He's won there five times, so it's not exactly going you know, to be any surprises to him. But he knows he's going to have to keep it in play, and he knows that they're going to take certain holes and create sections of the fairway that then become rough. Take the first third of the right side of 11. You could turn that into the rough, or the first third of the left side of 11, so that the thing plays much you know much more narrow than it would traditionally so you know they can narrow that place up and that would have already been done by now and the players already know what what it is and they know what clubs they're going to hit and there's no surprises and they've all played the golf course it's okay so it's different earlier in the year but so Pebble Beach probably needs to play a golf course one time he's going okay I got this Not the local knowledge something at Augusta over the years, you might pick up a shot occasionally because you know something, but they're all, they all get it. They're not stupid. They're not going to hit the wrong shot. How many times do you hit the wrong club? I never hit the wrong club. I may miss hit, mis- hit it. I may not hit the shot I want, but do I pick the right club? Yeah. So why does it take them so long to pick the right club? takes me two seconds, and I'm going to shoot 78. should take them two seconds to shoot 68. And so I am hoping that narrow fairways, don't cause Bryson to be picked by, up by an ambulance and taken to the third floor at Bellevue for observation <laughs> with with Jordan, with Jordan and the ambulance right behind him saying we did this and we did that. It wasn't we. You did it. Jack Nick was never said we. He played. Caddy didn't play. He played. It's just we stuff.
1: <laughs> Peter, I want to switch gears just a little bit. And um, you had a very interesting conversation with Curtis Strange a while back. And I watched that interview and I was surprised to learn that following his back to back U.S. Open victories in 88 and 89. And he came close again in 1990, finished six strokes behind Hale Irwin. But he told you that following that tournament that the air sort of came out of him. What do you think he meant by that?
0: Exactly what he said. That you know, he Curtis had played some really good golf that that whole decade. He had a chance to win a Masters. That you know, he started with 80 in the first round and eventually made sixes on 13 and 15 and longer. Ended up picking up that victory instead. And you know, Curtis was known as a, as a really straight ball hitter and a really good iron player and. So you know he, he goes ahead and he, he wins that open over Nick Faldo, and they both said it was like playing myself that they both had identical games put in play at the green two putt go to the next hole, and so he won that one. And then you know then next year you know he ended up shooting a 64 I think in the first round at Oak Hill, and there weren't no weren't any 64s at Oak Hill to be had, and you know and he went and he he won there, and then. You know, and then he realized, you know, you're not thinking at that point, oh, okay, and next year, and loop it up. But it doesn't work that way. When it gets here, it gets here. But when he was at Medina and when he was in competition over the weekend and when he was competitive over the weekend and he had an opportunity to win three in a row and when it didn't happen and he got in the car, he realized the enormity of what he had tried to achieve Without actively thinking about it, like Bobby Jones thinking about the Grand Slam four years before he pulled it off. Sure, he wanted to win. Sure, he wanted to have three in a row, but he wasn't placing inordinate pressure on himself where he couldn't play his game that week. It didn't work like that if you're a really good player. And so it didn't happen. And so I think at that point, it was just like the pressure is off. I may never be able to do this again. No, no. I'm never going to do this again. I'm not going to win two U.S. Opens in a row anymore, am I? No, I'm not. Am I Am I ever going to have a chance to win three in a row then? Well, know. Well, and so have I reached my, my pinnacle as, as the best part happened? And he sat back and he said, yeah, I, I think the best part happened. And, of course, it turned out to be true, and he never won again. And then two up with three to play in the singles the Ryder Cup against Valdo, of all people, in 95. He lost the last three holes. And so that was the end of Curtis Strange. But the internal end, the the walking back down from the top of Mount Everest, occurred at the conclusion of Medina, when he knew he wasn't going to walk that hill again. He might do some good stuff, but I'm going to be that mountain. It might be something out on the West Coast, a little easier to handle, but it wasn't going to be that one again.
1: Peter, one more before I let you go. And You had a very touching conversation with Payne Stewart. It was interesting to learn how much of Payne's focus was on winning a U.S. Open. And he did it twice in 91 and 99. Talk about why that tournament was so important to Payne.
0: Well, because it was important to his dad. You know, His dad died so young and you know, his dad got to see him win in 82 at Quad Cities, and he got to see a couple other things. But, you know, he he was gone in the mid-80s, and, you know, Payne was just starting to get, get things going. But, you know, his dad was a super-duper player, and... His dad was also friends with a lot of really good players who had been professionals. R- some really interesting characters like, like Kyle Foon, who was a super player in the thirties on tour, didn't win a bunch of stuff, was great ball hitter. A lot of guys went to him and said, you know, take a look at my swing, but he was super duper crazy. Like he would do stuff like if he three putted He might stick his hand into a thorn bush and take it in and take it out until it came out all bloody. And he would say, that'll teach you from getting into the shot again. And so his wife said to him, Kai, she said, "If you ever do anything like that again? You ever hurt yourself or hit yourself with a club, which you did many times? She said, that's the end of the relationship. So LaFoon is playing in a tournament and everything's going fine. Then all of a sudden he makes three or four birdies and he gets himself into a touchy situation because now he's in the lead. And then one of the guys who had already finished is sitting in a tree, Bobby Cruikshank, heckling Kyle LaFoon as he's trying to two putt from 30 feet and then he three putted. So LaFoon throws the putter. Then he starts looking around the back of the green at all the bushes, and he finds a huckleberry bush, and he goes over to the huckleberry bush, and he puts his right hand in, and he takes it out, and it's bloody, and he puts it back in, and he takes it out, and it's bloody, and his wife is there, and she comes up to him, and she said, that's it, I told you, if you ever did anything like that again, it's over, and he said, it has nothing to do with that, and he said, I just don't like huckleberry." And so that was somebody <laughs> that taught pain how to play super golf and hit a lot of shots. And his dad, you know, taught Payne how to let the ball fall to the right. And so because it meant a lot to his dad and because he lost his dad early and because he didn't get to see the things that Payne ultimately did you know, that was, became then something that he carried. It was important to his dad. Okay. Now it's important to me. And he was a U.S. open type player. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, here's a guy who swung at 80% for sure, for sure. And he put the ball in play. I played with him. I mean, you know, it was insane. He just, you know, make that little, that easy swing and looks like you're not even doing anything. And, you know, and the ball would go a mile and he had a lot of irons around the hole and he had super duper touch and he was great to play with. And he played with him, he would wear long pants and, uh, a normal cap so you didn't realize that was Payne Stewart because he wasn't dressed in his costume and stuff that's what i said to him the first time he showed up for a game i said i'm so glad i'd see that stupid ass costume with the plus fours and all that dopey stuff and he laughed and we got along so well but you know yeah so it was critically important to him and I remember he had a chance to win in 93 and lost to lee jansen up at uh Ball straw i went there actually and I was there at Olympic in ninety eight when, when he lost Lee Jansen again, Lee's two US opens, Payne's two misses, and of course I was there in ninety nine and after he won in ninety nine and I had a chance to run into him, but when we did some TV that night I remember it, I said to him, you know, how proud would your dad be right now? And you know, and he said he'd be so effing proud, Peter. He said he said, And I guess Peter, you'll uh, you'll be wanting to talk to me tonight. I said, you know what? You're not really that interesting. <laughs> I, said, I said, I'd said i actually rather interview Phil because I really felt like he should have been the winner. And so, of course, you know, he laughed and he came up and we did a show and stuff. But, no, I loved him. And I was with Payne two weeks before he died. We were October 10th, 1999 at the old course in St. Andrews. He was playing the Dunhill Cup. I was there doing some interviewing and whatever. He finished his match, his singles match, sat down and laid behind the steps. We were supposed to have played golf a few weeks before, but he did a goofy Chinese impersonation and he thought I was going to, you know, skewer him for it, which I would have. And so we blew off the show. And so we're sitting there and it's October 10th. And he goes, well, okay. So I'm going home to Orlando and I got to go to Houston for this thing. I'm working on a golf course. And then of course there's, I got to go to, there's tournament there right after. He said, so let's play, let's play in November. He said, the first week of November, I'm actually good. If you want to play eat, and then do the show and then go out for dinner and I'll get drunk and you can drive me home and how come you don't drink? And, and then he looked at me and he goes, remember, Peter, we have all the time in the world. and referring to playing golf in November, which Payne never got to see. And two weeks and one day later, he was gone. And so, you know, that now that was very personal to me, obviously, because I knew him and at his funeral, they used a clip from one of our shows together where he said, you know, if I, if I die on my way home, driving home tonight in my car, I, I'm going to be at peace because I love my family, and I love my God, and I have a peaceful heart, and everything is good, and I'm the best man that I've ever been. So if I go right now, I'm, I'm going to be okay with that. What a story.
1: Well, Peter, before we let you go, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things you continue to do and follow you online and on social media as well.
0: I would really just say, you know, my Twitter feed or my Facebook, I'm usually a little bit ahead on Twitter, and then within the next 24 hours, I move it all over to Facebook. But I've got 35 two-minute U.S. Open run-up pieces posted on Twitter And, of course, I wrote, you know, now every major, I I write a new rock and roll song. I posted that the other day. And, uh, you know, my muse is Leonardo da Vinci. So I said, so, Leo, I said, so, you know, like you, I do a lot of different things. And I said, so, you know, I want you to hear this song. So I played da Vinci the song. And. Yeah, you know, and he looked at me and I said, Well, I mean, think about it. I said, There's a, an original section, a talkback back section nobody's ever done before. And I said, There's there's Elvis hints at the beginning and the end. And you know, Da Vinci looks at me and he goes, Blackbird was better. So, you know, <laughs> I so I'm just doing everything I can to 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 put up as much good stuff as I can and I and I hope people will watch it and if I and I've got a couple of things up my sleeve, and you and I will get a chance to talk about it next time we talk because we'll break them together. But Twitter is a good place to follow me because I'm extremely active, and you know, and I let all 16 of my personalities run completely free, and I'm very unpredictable, but I'm never boring. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good follow there.
1: Well, Peter – There is no better way to kick off the show on a Tuesday night than getting to spend some time with you listening to your stories and your insights. Hope you'll come back and join me again real soon, my friend. Always a privilege having you as part of the show.
0: Yeah, even I was entertained, so that was really cool. So I'm looking forward to the next time. Thanks, (laughs) buddy. It's always great to be with you. You're my man. You're my man. And listen, you tell these Launchpad people that we have some kind of a contract where I appear regularly because... I want to get that thing pumped up at the beginning, and you might as well go with the Beatles, which is me in one person. So let's do that, you know, as soon as that thing gets cracking. But tell them I'm on. Tell them I'm in. Tell them we have a deal. Tell them you're paying me such a fortune. we got to get this going. <laughs> I appreciate you, Peter.
1: I will definitely care, do that. Take care, buddy. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family.
0: Thank you, buddy. You too.
1: That's a great Peter Kessler At Peter Kessler on Twitter Make sure you give him a follow He's got such great content And so many great interviews That he's got posted there From his time on the Golf Channel So please go check him out And like he said It's a run-up to the U.S. Open So he's got a lot of things That were in conjunction With uh, some of the historical U.S. Open Some of the great ones uh, from the past So uh, go check him out online Again, at Peter Kessler on Twitter And give him a follow on uh, Facebook as well